Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have Michael Emery with us, um, and we are actually at the Cornwall Furnace Historic Site um, owned by the state, and I'm really enjoying all the all the um, buildings and everything. So thank you, thank you for inviting me out and um, and agreeing to be on the podcast today. Well, thank you. So tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, I was uh, I'm I'm a native Pennsylvanian. Uh, I was born in uh, Honeybrook Township, Chester County. So that's where. Chester, Lancaster, and Berks County all, all come together. And uh, it, it was an area that was, it was great to grow up in, I come from very large extended families that had lived in that area for, for literally hundreds of years. Uh, and that was a, a place that I really treasure growing up in. Uh, and that's really where my first exposure to historic architecture and things were because uh, I had Again, this large extended family, grandparents, great-grandparents living in the area, uh, and both my living great-grandparents owned uh, historic farms, lived in 18th century buildings, uh, one log, one stone, uh, and in, in one case, uh, the family had owned the property since the 1840s, and, and my great-grandmother that lived on that property was born in the 19th century. She was born in, in 1890, and in many ways, uh, that property uh, you know, they were still cooking on a wood cook stove. So it, it was a very kind of old way of doing it. So I, I kind of got interested in, in these, in historic preservation things quite by accident. It was just because it was the environment that I was around and, and really uh, didn't know any better, but it <laughs> certainly en enjoyed it. Uh, so I, uh, I then went to, uh, to school, went to, uh, to Penn State. Uh, my sister was also a Penn State graduate. Uh, I was accepted there as a nuclear engineering student. And uh, probably one of the best and most influential conversations was with my sister. Uh, she was a food science major, uh, works uh, for a chocolate company here in Pennsylvania. And uh, one day I'd been accepted, it was the summer before I was to go, and she said, uh, do you really want to do math and science every day for the rest of your life? And, and it was odd because of my age, you know, there were essentially, if you were a kind of a college-bound male in kind of the Reagan era, uh, you were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And I didn't want to be the first two, so that kind of <laughs> left the ladder. Uh, so 
when I came to the census, I said, no, that's not really what I'd want to do. And uh, the other thing is, is that I was uh, an ROTC student at, uh, at Penn State, and uh, that was also at the time of the end of the Gulf War. So there was a great uh, kind of a downsizing of the military. Oh, yeah. So being an officer really wasn't going to be an option for me anymore. So I had been taking classes. I was already, I was a history major because that was really what I liked. So I had changed that even before I got to Penn State. And uh, I then ended up uh, looking for, uh, remember this is the days when you had a big paper catalog that you went through. <laughs> and uh, I remember looking, I was trying to get an art credit and uh, I came across these uh, classes that were in uh, American studies. Mm -hmm. And there was one that was on decorative arts and there was one that was on architecture, kind of an uh, introduction right. to historic preservation yeah. class. Uh, so I ended up taking that. The professor's name uh, was uh, Dick Pensick, uh, who uh, also had an interesting background. He was a professor of kinesiology, so he, uh, did a lot of teaching of racquetball classes. He had been <laughs> Penn State's lacrosse coach at one time. Uh, but he was really the first person to kind of open my eyes uh, into uh, this whole idea of decorative arts uh, as, as a study. Mm -hmm. I had been going to auctions since I was a kid. I had been collecting since I was a kid. So I had the interest, but I just didn't have anything with any academic rigor right. uh, to kind of start that. So. I took that class, I took an architecture class, and then eventually, uh, since I was kind of casting about, didn't know what I was going to do, uh, an internship came due, and, and he kind of threw it on my desk one day and said, hey, Mike, I think you'd be good at this, why don't you apply? And the internship was for the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission. So I became uh, an intern at the Daniel Boone Homestead, which is one of our properties in Eastern Berks County, Daniel Boone's birthplace. And uh, there I met uh, a man by the name of Jim Lures, who was the, the site administrator. Okay. And uh, Jim was just a, an, an absolutely the person I needed to meet at that time period because uh, he was someone who knew history very well, uh, he was also someone who, was, who got you excited about it, but he also knew histor historic architecture very well. So he was the one who started driving me around and showing me uh, the area which is known as the Oli Valley, which oh, really, you yes. know, has these yes. wonderful architectural gems, great preserved land. And I started to get an eye, you know, it, it, and it was funny, after that first summer, as I drove through areas that I had known my entire lifetime, now I knew the vocabulary right. that went with the buildings, and now I knew, oh, most likely the house type and plan was this, and you could tell that from the outside. Right. So, you know, Jim did a really good, and then as it turned out, later on, after graduation, I was hired and worked there at, at Daniel Boone Homestead for uh, two and a half years. He was my boss. Uh, he also ran another site, uh, Conrad Weiser Homestead in Western Berks County. Uh, he, he was my boss there as well. And then eventually I, I worked at uh, Landis Valley Museum. I was there for 13 years and through some reorganization uh, around 2009, uh, he became the site administrator there. So he followed yes. me. I went there in 2005. So that's what really kind of got me into museums. It, and it was not something that when I was a 15-year-old, I was thinking, I'm going to be a museum yes. guy. 
you know, at that time period, I thought that I might be driving a nuclear-powered submarine. Right. Uh, so I did this, you know, kind of complete 180 going from sciences to the humanities. Uh, but, you know, it, it was something that I certainly don't regret. Yeah. I have a really good friend um, who was, she, she graduated with her degree in nuclear engineering and is now works as an as a, um, as an acupuncturist, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, certainly it's not a growth industry. Yes. Right? So. So, so you kind of talked about, you know, why history and preservation. Um, so tell me a little bit about the site that we're at now, the, the Cornwall Iron Furnace. Well, Cornwall is, is located in Cornwall, Lebanon County, so we're really just over the line uh, from Lancaster County. Uh, Route 322 historically ran right through the site okay. and did because of the furnace right. location. Uh, as, as a historic site, this has been operating since 1932. Uh, one of the, the, uh, the owners, uh, whose name was Robert Coleman, his great-granddaughter, uh, gave it to the Commonwealth in 1932. We're, we're a rather small site for a historic site. We're five acres, uh, though we hold some of the most his, uh, historically significant and important buildings, I think, that the Commonwealth owns. Mm -hmm. And I, I did think, I was doing research prepping for this, and I thought it was really interesting that they were talking about this is the last, like, intact... Um, cold, cold glass, cold iron glass. first. Iron first that in the Western Hemisphere is yes. that correct? Okay. Yes, and and that's the thing is that so many other iron furnaces, uh, number one, were were oftentimes the furnace stack is what most people consider the furnace, okay. but of course around the the stone stack there would have been a place for the blast apparatus, a place to do casting, and also a way to charge the furnace. Right. Most of the time, those were built out of wood. And most of the time when the furnace stopped operation, uh, that also stopped the family's income. Right. So usually the building at that time was abandoned, mm -hmm. usually looted uh, for right. anything that would be necessary. In this case, uh, the Coleman family, which, which ended up uh, in ownership of Cornwall Furnace, uh, retained a fair amount of income. Uh, this was one of their furnaces. Right. And also the iron deposit that they ended up having, you know, a, a very large stake in ownership, uh, was the largest one east of the Mississippi, uh, and for a number of years was the largest period uh, in the United States, right. and ran uh, up until closure in 1973. So it ran from the 1730s uh, all the way up until 1973, and uh, approximately 106 million tons of iron ore were extracted out of the mine uh, and done you know with modern methods uh, when when Bethlehem Steel owned it. So the uh, so when did the uh, furnace start in, in production here? The uh, the furnace was started by a man by the name of Peter Grubb and uh, Peter uh, comes from southeastern Pennsylvania he's descended from 17th century uh, folks that had come through Delaware then through Chester County and and by all accounts, he was a mason, uh, so he's someone who knew about stone. So the thought is that a possibility that he was coming to these hills here uh, because of the stone, not necessarily because of the ore, but quickly found that there were these rich uh, iron ore deposits that were just on the surface, uh, gets titled to the land, and then starts to experiment with it. So initially in the, 
In the 1730s, he begins mining. He builds a bloomery forge, which is a very early way of making iron directly from the ore, where they actually heat up the iron in a in kind of like a large blacksmith's forge okay. and then put it under a, a water-powered trip hammer. And by the action of literally slamming that piece of, and smashing it, you're, you drive slag out of oh, the material and then yeah. you're left with iron, which you know has issues with it. It's, yeah. it's inefficient. You yeah. get uh, things that are buried within the iron that are impurities. Yeah. Uh, so after I think uh, just a few years, it was worth then building a larger operation. So then Grubb in 1742 uh, somehow scrapes together the money to go ahead and build an operating furnace. So water power coming down to, uh, to run the blast apparatus, a stack, a casting room, and of course everything else that's needed off of that. He also builds uh, a forge uh, to refine uh, the pig metal that's made here, so the cast into uh, market bars that could then be used by blacksmiths. Okay. So taking cast iron, making it over into wrought iron. Uh, 1744, though, so just two years later, he advertises in the Pennsylvania Gazette to try to put this out uh, to let or, or to rent. Okay. So uh, it's the response is then to uh, is made by a group of investors out of Baltimore, Maryland, who form what they call the Cornwall Company. Mm -hmm. So they enter into agreement in 1745, and then uh, run that until 1765. Okay, and is the 1765 then when the Coleman's take over? Well, uh, no, what happens okay. is that Peter Grubb uh, dies in 1754. He has two sons, Peter and Curtis. So they take over operation in 1765, and uh, over time, uh, you have tension between the two brothers. Ultimately, <laughs> one of them uh, dies in there, and uh, Robert Coleman then starts to gain control of the furnace in the late 1780s, okay. and then by the 1790s has full control of the furnace. Very good. And um, the Coleman's were the ones that made the huge Gothic buildings, is that correct? Yes, uh, the descendants of Robert Coleman. So okay. Robert Coleman, uh, locally, he, he lived in Lancaster in the latter part of his days. Uh, has a lot of, of history in Lancaster itself. Uh, his descendants still own what is now uh, Elizabeth Furnace, uh, okay. north of Brickerville. Oh, yes. Uh, that was one of, of, of Robert's holdings. He actually owned that before he owned uh, Cornwall. Uh, he also built locally, uh, west of Mount Gretna, is a little village of Colebrook. Uh, that was a furnace that was also built uh, by Robert Coleman in 1791. Uh, and they owned all of the land between those areas. Oh. So this had been uh, about 10,000 acres, and then later on the Coleman's owned about 20,000 acres here, including uh, agricultural holdings. Uh, most of that, of course, was necessary for wood that would eventually be, you know, we're sitting right now in a charcoal barn. Right. Yeah, so this was storage for this building. Uh, and it took approximately an acre of day for every one of those furnaces to operate. So that took huge amounts, uh, teams of people that were out cutting down trees, processing it, making it into charcoal, and then bringing them to store in the charcoal barn. So they just needed vast amount of timber land right. to be able to do that. And then, um, we talked a little bit before we started recording about, because as I was driving, I remembered that the Coleman's held slaves. So did you, have you been, uh, I, 
have you been uh, researching that or are you telling that story as part of the tour? We, we are telling that story as part of the tour. We also have it in our orientation okay. exhibit, uh, but it's something like a, like a lot of history that hasn't been told before isn't always the easiest to find. Right. And uh, we had a, a person who was an intern back in the 1990s do a paper on it, who currently works for the Museum Commission. Right. Brett Ray is, is one of our archivists. And that was really the jumping off point of right. some of our, our history. And he was looking at uh, that history from really the, in the 1760 to the 1790s. But we also know that from records that from the, uh, the Cornwall Company, the one right. that held it in the 1740s, 50s, and into the the mid-60s, uh, that these Maryland uh, folks that were the investors also had had slaves and, and brought them here. And their records are around. That was the one thing that a lot of people were looking for the records of the earliest part of Cornwall. Okay. They're not in Pennsylvania. Oh, they're in Maryland. They're in Maryland, and primarily because there had been a dispute between two of the owners later on, they were entered into evidence. <laughs> so therefore, yeah. so in, the, in yeah. the Maryland State Archives, <laughs> are the early ledger books of the furnace. So they've been examined by a couple of scholars. It's not something I've been able to get at yes. yet, but would love the opportunity to see them. Uh, our other ledgers uh, for the 18th century and into the 19th century, many of those are in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Brett looked through many of those and was looking at payments and also uh, oftentimes debits from some of the slaves, what they were buying at the company's right. store. And uh, we know that there are lists also that show up for different tax purposes and for, for things. So we're getting in and looking at that, that history a lot more because uh, it's something that very few people think about when they think of Pennsylvania. Right. They, they don't think, of, and of course, when you look at slave holdings in, in the North, particularly in Pennsylvania, Iron furnaces and forges tended to hold the most yes, slaves. Yes, that is true. And a lot of them tended to be uh, people that had skill, that mm -hmm. they were not just a laborer, they were doing other sorts of things. And you know, locally, the one person uh, that, if, if people know the name of one of the slaves that worked for the family, it is Governor Dick. Uh, Governor that. Dick's Park, mm -hmm. uh, Governor Dick's Hill, uh, he, uh, we know the most about Governor Dick because in, I believe it was 1798, uh, the manager of Cornwall Furnace puts an ad in one of the local newspapers, uh, a man by the name of Rudolph Kelker, and he describes uh, Governor Dick, uh, describes him, and, and the one thing I, I find very interesting about it is that it talks about the scarring around his eyes. So this was, you know, scarring that had happened most likely in Africa. So right. he's not an American-born, he's most likely African-born right. comes, comes here, uh, and also calls him a carpenter. And uh, that he, one of the things that he has is a foot injury. Uh, he had, I guess at some time during his time of, of working in wood, had buried an ax into his foot. Oh, yeah. So that's something that makes it into the description. So again, we're, we're attempting to tell that story and, and would like to tell a richer story there than the information we have. But it's something that as, as I'm getting time, I'm looking into and, and certainly it's one of those research things as we get grad students and people yes. looking to do internships, it's very high on my list to have that as one of the, the things that we discuss and look at. Yeah, I think that, that there's a, a trend right now and it's, and it's been a trend probably the past 20 years, it's not just 
it's not just it's not right recent now. right yeah but to tell the more complete story and I think that that helps everybody right. understand you know the the complexity and the and everybody was working together to build you know willingly or not right <laughs> yeah but everybody was involved but, in, but in the idea this. of yeah. who built America yes, yes. not the person who was in charge of it but who was actually you yeah, know with the, the sweat work. in their hands yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, here at Cornwall, like a lot of places, we had enslaved Africans. We had indentured people that were uh, Irish and German. And uh, we also had Hessians uh, during the American Revolution that were being leased out by, you know, kind of the new, uh, you know, revolutionary government right. to go ahead and to work here as well. So, uh, were they making munitions then? Or? It, that was one of the things that during the American Revolution, uh, both uh, Peter and Curtis Grubb were actually colonels in, uh, in the Pennsylvania uh, branch of, of the American Army. And they also took on munition contracts. So they uh, took on contract to make uh, 42 naval guns. So they were making uh, cannon, and they were also then making cannon balls for them. And when you look at the Hessians that were here, uh, and I'm just using that as a general oh, yeah, term, yeah. Uh, Many of them were, were artillerists. And one of the things that the government contract called for is that when you made a gun, you had to essentially load it heavy and fire two good rounds out oh, of it. To make sure it was to make sure that it didn't explode. Right. You know, because that's not good for morale when your guns explode. <laughs> uh, so we think that the very good possibility is that they were using these Hessians to go ahead and to fire to the guns. Fire, so yeah. they since they already had the skill set. And we know from archaeology and from just local lore, for many, many years in a meadow over on uh, Cornwall Manor's property, they found cannonballs. And they're the 12-pounders that would come out of the naval guns that were being cast here. So we think that those were the ones that were being test-fired and were just you know, unrecovered out of that field. That, that's, that's very interesting. But yeah, you could, I mean, you hear about you know, finding un unexploded, I don't know if that's the right word, right. round places. So that, that makes sense that if they were testing stuff out, they weren't going to find it all. No, they weren't, they weren't finding it all, so. So, okay, well, um, tell me a little bit about the challenges that you have preserving uh, uh, Pennsylvania Historic Museum Commission pirates. Well, of course, you know, the one thing that, that we're very happy about is that this is a, a state-funded yeah. operation. So. Uh, the, the taxpayers of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, this is part of uh, one of the things that they're you know, paying their hardworking money right. toward, yes. is to keep places like this mm -hmm. uh, up and operational. Uh, and and we're, we're grateful for that. But of course, over time, uh, you know, some of that support has eroded right. at, at times. And, and uh, you know, a lot of our places, uh, you know, we don't have many people on our staff anymore. But, you know, we talk about kind of the, the Hazelon days of the Bicentennial, oh, yeah. where there were pots of money that were coming out of the federal government, more pots of money that were being directed out of uh, state government, and a lot of large projects were being done at that time. So, you know, that's not something that we've been the beneficiary of. Right. You know, it's hard to believe, but, you know, now that's going on almost 50 years. Right. Uh, so a lot has happened in that time period. Uh, but we've also, I think, gotten a little bit smarter in the way that we've done it. You know, the, the money is going to areas that 
where we do see more uh, long-term preservation of the buildings yeah, uh, because we're looking at, okay, if we do put this roof on this building, we want to do it once and not do it twice right. because it's going to cost you more in the long run to do it that way. So, you know, we're trying to economize as much as possible. But for this site, one of our biggest challenges is just the scale of the buildings. Oh, yeah. uh, it's an industrial site. You know, I remember uh, I live in a historic home. Uh, I grew up in a historic home as well. And when I was looking at things, uh, my father, who's a very, very practical, you know, Pennsylvania Dutchman, uh, would look at us say, and say, you know, if you, you have a big building, everything costs more. You know, you have right. larger roof, you have larger this, you have larger, you know, everything is going to cost more. Right. And, and we're kind of looking at that here. I mean, our square footages are enormous. Oh, yeah. And uh, we have stone buildings, thank goodness, but even stone buildings need we to be repointed. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, slate roofs, but if the slate goes, you know, there's something right. wrong, yeah. it's That's really expensive. very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have those sorts of things. Uh, we also, uh, the last time that there was an economic downturn, uh, the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission lost approximately a third of its staff. And those levels have never, have never come, come back. back yeah. So, you know, we're doing more with less. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, of course, the community has been uh, very helpful in that as well. All of our sites have uh, what they call friends or associate groups. So okay. at this site, we have a group uh, which is the Cornwall Iron Furnace Associates, which does business as the friends of the Cornwall Iron Furnace. So it's a nonprofit support group. It's a 501c3. So they're very uh, active in helping us to get and recruit volunteers. Uh, they help us out financially. Uh, they actually provide two staff members for me. I have oh, two part-time staff uh, people that, that are here. So, you know, between this kind of public and private partnership, we're, we're able to, uh, to keep things going. Now, of course, this is all kind of pre-COVID. Right. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll, this is a story that's still being written. Right. So we, we have to kind of see what's going on. And, and I know that there is a great deal of, uh, of fear. You know, I've, I've seen within museum circles, uh, places that are already closing that say they will not reopen, yeah, that, that this is too. it. Yeah. And, you know, some people are saying that there could be possibly uh, a third of museums mm -hmm. that will then go out of existence after right. this is all finished. So this is, you know, like every other aspect of the economy in, in America, right. you know, this has just been uh, something that has, you know, devastated kind of every aspect of American yes. society. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, I heard that, and I actually heard them talking about that again this morning while I was getting ready on, on the, show that was on and I I could see you know because especially if you count on I think in some ways you're fortunate to be a, a state-owned site absolutely because like, if you're counting on admissions to, to fund your museum that's and, and people can't come or you know you right. have to really reduce your size is that I could see how that would be a huge impact yes yeah, so yeah. You know, right now we're we're fine as far as that's concerned. But you know, eventually, even even our agency uh, admissions money goes into a fund, which then helps to fund positions and right. also helps yeah. to pay other bills. Right. So even as as a state agency being being closed, right. uh, it's not. We'll, yeah. we'll have an economic impact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So um, I noticed when I was on the website that you have several educational 
resources and a virtual tour? Do you uh, are you doing more things like that because of because of the COVID we we or? are uh, one one of the things that the uh, the organization here uh, did for a number of years was have uh, speakers. Okay. So we would have a lecture series, and we did that in partnership with our neighbor, uh, Cornwall Ma uh, Manor Retirement uh, Community. And uh, we would have talks in what was the 19th century uh, cattle barn okay. uh, on their property. Yes. You'd never know it today. <laughs> it's really been uh, redone, but it was actually in one of the 18th century Coleman, or 19th century Coleman spaces. And uh, it afforded us a nice large location, uh, wonderful AV and everything. Yes. And plus we had a number of people from Cornwall Manor who would come uh, to the talks. And we would get anywhere between 50 to maybe 75. We had maybe 100 for one of our larger oh. talks. Uh, and we had to cancel our first couple. The way that uh, COVID hit, hit this site, is that typically the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission has an opening day in March, oh, which yes. is Charter, Charter Day. day yes. So we had that the second Sunday of March, as we normally do. Uh, we had our lecture here at Cornwall that Tuesday, uh, had, a, had a very nice crowd, and then we closed the following Sunday. Right. So we were really open for the season. Now we're open during the winter, right. but I mean, we always see that at least it's mentally like as the kickoff yes. of, yeah. of the season. So we were open for a little bit less than a week. So of course, everyone thought this will be a couple of weeks and we're done. Yeah. And then it's gonna be a couple of months and we're done. So after it went for a little while, we started looking and think, well, we have to go ahead and have more of a presence. We did a lot of things on Facebook, but it's like, well, we have to regularize this yes. and get it out to a larger audience. So uh, one of my volunteers actually approached me. He said, you know what? I, I would you want to try uh, you know, to do an online talk? And I had already been thinking that direction. Right. So when he voiced it, I was already there. I was already <laughs> on the page. And uh, we had some of our, our board members also that were interested. So we went and, and got a, a pay Zoom account to do the webinar version of it because oh, yeah. that's also in the early days of Zoom when everyone was talking about the issues they were having oh, with yes. security. And, yeah. and I was like, well, we don't want to do, do that. And, uh, <laughs> right. So we were able to, do, and we've had now uh, two lectures in our series, uh, both of which uh, had about 100 people oh, actually sign pretty, up. Yeah. but. You know, of course, some people are watching with their spouse, right. their family, yeah. their other. So, you know, we think that we've had probably about 150 people. And yeah. when we looked at the names of the folks, because that's another thing you could see oh, yes. kind of who's yeah. there, uh, some are people that we knew, uh, yeah. some are people that were board members, some, yeah. but there are lots of names we'd never seen those people oh, before. That's great. So yeah. we so are reaching, reaching, reaching a larger audience. And, you know, that is the one nice thing is that. Uh, Oftentimes, events are very geographically limiting. They are. You have to be in the area in order to to attend. Well, that's no longer a barrier. Right. That's uh, so that's that's helpful in, in that respect. So we're you know we're looking at trying to do more of that. I know PHMC in general is looking into a, a larger IMLS grant for technology okay. to be able to do more, yeah. you know, live streaming of of different types mm -hmm. of talks tours. Uh, videos, right. all those sorts of things yeah. to be able to reach out because, you know, we're not only looking at our day-to-day -day visitor, but we're also looking at, you know, what are schools and what are students right. going to require in this new age yeah. as well. So, you know, we're looking into all those sorts of things and hoping to be able to provide 
uh, content at different levels and yes. for and for different reasons yeah. and reasons yeah. and uses. And, and that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, once, thankfully, we were our projects were not impacted because um, that we got an exemption for the shutdown. But anyway, the um, but um, the. We in like early April. I'm like, we need to do something because we usually go out and do speaks and speak, speeches and things. So I'm like, so we started doing a preservation coffee break. So every every Wednesday at 4:30, we've been coming on, and if nobody comes on, we'll just talk about whatever we want to talk about. Like, and it's not it's not very planned. <laughs> but um, and you know, it's 10, 15 minutes of just us talking. But if somebody comes on and they have like specific questions, we'll chat with them and talk to them. So I've been calling it like office hours for preservation. <laughs> very good, very so, good. But it's, it's kind of fun and it, it's fulfilling my dream of being like an advice columnist. So. <laughs> so. You get to kick the tires on that. Yes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not guaranteeing that I'll give you good advice, but I'll give you advice. <laughs> very good. So, um, are, uh, what challenges or trends do you see in preservation beyond? Kind of in general. Yeah, yeah just in general. There, there are certain things that, that trouble me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm the heart of a, a real stuff guy. I, I like buildings, I like things. Uh, yeah. And uh, again, going back to kind of my youth, I remember uh, I was very close to my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And uh, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was born in 1914. His father was born in 1877. So as we would drive around the area that I grew up, he would talk about landscapes oh, yes. from his youth. Yes. So I'm looking at the 1920s and all these things that were now gone. Yes. And I thought that in my lifetime, I would never see that number of buildings change, change yeah. and be destroyed. Yeah. And, and, the, and I think that's one of the things that I really mourn for this area. Yes is that we almost at times treat historic resources mm -hmm. as something that will grow back. Yeah. It, I, and it's not a crop of corn. Yeah. You'll never get it back. No. And I know there are you know, TV shows that are out there right now that where they're harvesting buildings. Right, yeah. And, and that's something where if the building is going to end up in the, in the lands, in you know, a landfill, that's yeah. one thing. But I think as soon as historic fabric is kind of made a commodity in that way, right. then people have the impotence to sell them as a commodity. Uh, and, and that's something that is just troublesome because I see, you know, going, you know, on my drive here this morning, uh, I saw a, no, a new log building that was uncovered. Um, and I sit there and think, is that a building that's gonna get restored or is that gonna end up as a hundred mantles Right. over yeah. over people's yeah. or flooring or flooring yeah. and and again uh that's something that i i just mm -hmm. it, it's it's a surprise it's an alarming trend yeah. uh and, and something uh, particularly in an area like this where people oftentimes think we have so much mm -hmm. but we've also lost so much yeah uh, i yeah i agree with you and i um it's part of my consulting work i'll I, have, I go out and do demolition reviews for one of the rural counties in Lancaster, and almost all of them are plain families that want to tear down their house. And most of the time, I don't have an issue saying this is okay because they've already taken everything historic off of it and the building's just old. 
but I and I've been thinking like how I don't think I think it's a mindset and I don't think that I could actually like convince them that newer isn't better even though right. yeah but but I, I I've been thinking about that a lot too so that's that's interesting that you said that because I do think that there's it, it's it's understanding why it's important not just that it's old right um, and and after you've taken everything historic off of it then it is just an old building right and, and that's cool well yeah. you know, and, I, and I can tell you you know uh, in the beginning of the interview, I was telling you my background with, mm-hmm. about my great-grandparents' right. farms. Yeah. Neither of those houses stand. Yeah. Neither of them. Uh-huh. Uh, one, you know, a log structure, probably late 18th century, and the other a stone structure from the late 18th century. Uh-huh. And both in that time period are, are now gone. Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's just my memory of just two yes. buildings. Yeah. And, but as you take that across the landscape, yeah. uh, it, it, makes an, it makes a definite effect. It and, and it's... Uh, yeah. Something that certainly I think will cheapen the experience of those people that will come after us. Uh, you know, looking at down the road, you know, why did we preserve a place like Cornwall? We preserved it so that future generations will be able to learn about where we as Pennsylvanians, we as Americans, where we've come from, right. and things that were important. Why is the landscape here? Why is this right. named Cornwall? You know, what? You know, how did the iron industry affect all of this? Why are towns made? You know, why were communities put here? Yeah. You know, it was put here because of these industries. Right. But if you wipe the industry off the map, you wipe the workers' houses off the map, and it's so difficult to tell that story. And places do connect us to those memories where the people have the people are gone. Right. Um, and without those touchstones, that memory does start to fade then. Right. So, so. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that I was telling you about the book that I read, and I've probably mentioned it on, like, the past four podcasts. But <laughs> it, it, that really was, like, a revelation to me that that places that and, and a, from a preservation standpoint you know that the places are what then connect us to those memories and keep those memories right. going no, I, I had a, a mentor uh, who he was a, a, a stuff person as well and his thing was artifacts are the key to unwritten history yeah. Yeah. and the idea that oftentimes uh, you know possibly a tool with someone's name that was hammered into it right that might be the only thing that exists of that person, but there's a name, so now you might be able to reclaim their history right. by research. Yeah. So that idea that if the artifacts are gone, there's no touchstone yeah. to go ahead and start yeah. to look for the history yeah. of them. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, I think that I think that those things are important, and we need to we need to. I, I try to be very practical when I'm you know when when I'm looking at buildings and, and what should be saved, but I I think that probably more should be saved than what we are. Right. So how can someone help support the site? Well, the easiest thing to do uh, right now uh, as far as supporting uh, a, a site like mm-hmm. ours would be that, you know, to go ahead and to, you know, tune in to some of the programs that we have online when we reopen, come to programming that we right. have, uh, become a member of a historical organization, even if it's not... Uh, the Friends of the Cornwall Iron Furnace, which I would kind of like, of course. <laughs> you know, there are many county historical societies that can also yeah. use that help. There are other museums and other people's local communities uh, that are always looking for not only people that uh, know and love history, but there are so many other aspects to running a place like this. Uh, you know, there's always the need for someone to uh, do CPA work. There's always oh, yeah. a need for someone to consult with things legally. Uh, 
you know, someone to be able to organize, uh, someone that would help out to say how to do children's programming. There's so many different ways that people can get involved. Uh, I had worked for 13 years at Landis Valley Museum, and we had people that their sole interest was gardening. Oh, yes. So coming to take care of, of gardens and things of that nature. So you know, getting involved with an organization, uh, joining an organization, and you know, if you have the interest and the financial security to go ahead and make donations uh, to organizations like this as well. Uh, we're certainly always looking for people that are interested. We're always certainly looking to you know, further the mission of our museum. Good. And then how should someone contact you? Should they visit the website? Visiting our website would be the easiest, which is uh, cornwallironfurnace.org. Uh, they can also uh, call the site, which is 717-272-9711. Okay. okay, very good. Is there anything that I didn't cover that you wanted to share? Or? When we were talking a little bit about uh, the idea of preservation. Uh, my family, we oftentimes, uh, we vacation in Maine, and there's a, there's a little town called Wiscasset, which calls itself the prettiest little town in Maine. <laughs> and going out of Wiscasset, there's a sign that I spotted probably about 15 years ago, and I think it's, it's one of the best things that I've ever seen and so succinctly said, and it says, preservation is progress. And that's one of those pieces that I often think about, you know, preserving places like this. That, I believe, is the most progressive thing to do, is to make sure that, you know, historic places are still right. around. Yeah. You know, knocking it down is not progress. Right. Rehabbing it is progress. Yeah, I agree. I agree very much. Thank you very much for, for your time today. I enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.